Yo, yo, yo. Hey, hey, hey. What is up, everybody? We're back. It's Extra Live Podcast, Meaning Making 101, our special series covering John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And th- today's episode is on reverse engineering enlightenment, which should be really cool. I'm pretty stoked for this one. Yeah. Yeah, after last episode. Last episode was awesome. Yeah, and it was only just a setup for this episode. Yeah, so let me get us up here on Mr. Facebook. Getting up on the Facebook, the Book of Faces. The Book of Many Faces. Yes. All right, we're live. What's up, Facebook fam? We are back. Actually, a podcast in the house with Meaning Making 101, continuing John Prevake's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And hopefully that graphical glitch I'm seeing on the screen is just <laughs> yeah. on my computer. Uh, uh, yeah, let's hope it's just on your computer. Oh, Stay. Oh. <laughs> Stop it! Stay there. Don't, don't make your way into the streams, please. Yeah, it looks good on. I can check. Looks good elsewhere. I can check on the YouTube real quick and make sure. I think we're solid. I'm gonna get us shared up here. Thank you guys for joining us today. If you enjoy this series or are curious about how we may cultivate wisdom in this time of uh, cultural crisis and social breakdown. This is the place, and we invite you to like John Verveke, whose series we've been following. He's a professor out of Toronto, University of Toronto, in grand old Canada. And what he's put together here is it's quite a masterwork, and it's a great gift to our times. So we welcome you, and uh, yeah, so I'm just going to share things up on the social real fast. Here. Sharing on the socials. Oh, yeah. Um, tell them about the shows we got coming up next what is it, Saturday. Uh, next Saturday, the 26th at Bad Habits. It's a metal festival. Yeah, Bad Habits in Martinsburg, in West Martinsburg, Virginia. Martinsburg, West Virginia. Um, it is uh, kicking off, I don't know, around, I don't know, be there around one-ish. That's when we're showing up. We're playing at uh, 245. Um, I don't know much yes, more yes. about it. I assume there will be food it's because it's a restaurant. A lot of great bands playing. Yeah, good food, good drinks, good people. I'm, I'm a little unprepared. I don't. I don't know exactly who's playing and what's going on. You know, unfortunately, I had to leave shortly after uh, playing because then I have another show up at the Shenandoah uh, uh, Lake Clubhouse for their whatever Saturday night uh, band extravaganza that they do. And that'll be Imaginary Man. Um, yeah, so I'll be one busy fellow on that day. And then the next week, the oh, yeah. 2nd of September at the Blue Fox. Musical Weekend. Oh, yeah. With Novarium and Fairy's Death Waltz, yeah. Waltz in uh, yeah Winchester, Virginia at the Blue Fox. And hey, if you don't like music and you still want to like go to a place where there's people, there's a lot of pool tables yeah, come out, have a good time. They do have a great pool hall there, and the stage is really nice, too. Yeah, yeah. It's like two separate rooms, and the, the stage room has its own separate bar. And it's, it's actually a pretty great. S- smart way to go, too. So you don't, when you go into the place, you don't have to pay a cover if you're staying in the pool hall area because they have the stage right. area separated, which allows you know regular business to go out for people who aren't there necessarily for the music to just want to shoot some pool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And their table rental rates are actually very... Uh, um, easy going and you won't uh, be put out a you whole bunch of money that's right yeah but uh oh and they serve beer in those big 24 ounce tankards so you know you can feel like a viking 
That's your over-large cup of beverage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was fun. Uh, yeah, and then, uh, but anything after that, I think sometime in October, but, uh, yeah, that we'll, we'll let you know as the summer goes on, which is almost over. Sad. Yeah. I'm excited for the leaves to start changing, for it to start cooling off a little uh, bit. That's the first reminder is that it's going to be cold. <sighs> Truth. It Winter is, time. You're a big burly guy. You can handle it. I don't like the cold. No? No. Nope. I, I love it, man. I, I like how everything gets really crisp and clean, like the air. Everything's like frozen and refrigerated. It just hurts. And it's, it hurts my skin. It hurts my joints. It does it hurt, dry you It out. hurts my mucous membranes and my lungs and my nose. <laughs> the only thing I like about it is starting a fire on my wood stove and not moving any more than five, six feet away from it. Yeah. Fair. Fair. Well, that's like the nicest part. I love that. Love how you get to, you know, warm up with some coffee or hot cocoa by the fire, and no, so at yeah. least the fireplace. I, I warm up with coffee and a cigarette, so I have to be outside, and then yeah. I come back into the fire. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, like, the, the the screensaver fireplace is popular these days. It doesn't have the same that, effect. That freaks but it me out nice. so much. <laughs> yeah, this I'm, is where we're at, man. It's total black mirror mode, isn't it? Boy, yeah. There's a strange new world. We talked about this last episode. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, I'd almost prefer that world to the one that might be coming, <laughs> you know, at Oof. least everybody was happy in their position in life. Oh, it depends on which episode. Yeah, well. Black Mirrors. No, I mean, I mean Brave New World. Brave New like, World, oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, 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 yeah I'm yeah. still. Now everything's nice and go. you're you're well-fed and comfortable and happy and it, it's still a terrible, frightening dystopia, but, you know. And you get to be beautiful until you hit 70, and that's where everything runs out, and you just naturally die. So beautiful mm. and young until you're old, and then you die. You die a little quicker. You don't live to be 100, but who wants to be old and <laughs> gross? Right, right. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking about uh, 1984 and Orwell today, too. Oh, man. Triggered by something I was listening to. I was talking about towards the end of that where he's, like, commanded to hold up, or they're holding up. Four fingers and and he's declaring now finally at the end of the whole story after they like really like break him down at the end that it's five yeah it's five five fingers that what was his name winston 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 Winston. yeah yeah Yeah, that that book doesn't have a happy ending uh he breaks down and he's he he breaks down and is assimilated into the system and is happy for it Mm -hmm. and loves big brother yeah, yeah. Um, drinking oily gin with his compadres yeah. at the end. Yeah, and everything's better for him if you, you know. But he didn't well, have. He didn't have. Well, that's enough. how. That's how he felt though. He he was like, you know, I was out of my mind for believing all that nonsense. It's way better now. <laughs> you know, I don't know what's in this, but it's double plus good, eh? But he felt the heights of joy and bliss and freedom for a short time. Yeah, contrasted with the existence that he had been living. Yep, and he even had to have, got to have sex with a cute girl too. Mm. He did make love, yeah. He, he yeah. was genuine, genuinely falling in love with her, and yeah. I don't remember if you know. It's been a while since I read that book. Yeah, but I, yeah, I, rem- I have uh, a vision in my head now of when he gets to start renting like this this place, and I think it's an apartment above this antique shop that he finds in the slums, and 
he has this place where he can read and write and do all mm. the forbidden things. And he doesn't have to hide in the corner on the TV yeah. side of the uh, or on the uh, TV wall, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because mm. all the t- in 1984, it's this book by George Orwell that was describing like a dystopian future scenario. And in the story, everybody's TVs are constantly recording. And, and, well, so they're not just and they're const- you don't just watch them; they watch you. And they're constantly on, and all you can do is turn. That's the, right. You turn the uh, brightness and the volume down, but not off. But not all the way. Yeah, so never all always, the way. It's yeah. always chattering at the you. The TV propaganda. wakes you up, and it's watching you. Yeah, all all the time. All the time. Yeah. Everybody's being watched all the time. So they're they're built into the walls, right? So um, he has to, if he wants to write in his journal, he has to go into the corner of his room that's on the TV wall side, so the camera can't see him. Mm-hmm. Which is fishy enough in it in in and of itself because if somebody notices that he disappears into that corner and then they find you know his journal and he's done for you know and you know Winston has one of the I, I would say higher positions in the um, in the bureaucratic hierarchy not the highest but you know he he's he's the one who edits old newspapers and old stuff like that to um, make it true yes to update the news. Um, so it's basically like a um the way I would describe it is like if you had England at the tail end of the industrial revolution then modernizing a bit but a socialist hellhole. Um uh, it's Ingsoc is the party English socialism uh or English socialist party is is the name of the governing force. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. And then there's global war that's happening, and, but is it actually happening because nobody really sees anything outside of their little designated area within their country? Mm-hmm. And there's supposedly... Yeah, I think a, Hunger Games, you know, it's it's similar in a mm-hmm. lot of respects. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the destruction of history is a big part of... Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. Newspeak, like the term newspeak comes from that. You know, it's like, instead of saying, you know, oh, this steak is absolutely fabulous. It's so savory and rich and the crust, on, you yeah, know, and being juicy. descriptive, it's... Yeah. it's Double plus good. Yeah, it's, it's plus or double plus good. Yeah. And so everything's broken down into a way so you can't even think complex thoughts. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, as we learned from Verveke, literacy allowed us to complexify and open up our ability to hold on to information. Now, if you remove all the words except for the most base you words, good, good, there's not good, better, best. It's mm-hmm. good, plus good, double yeah. plus good. Right. So in the movie, one of his buddies is sitting there and he's like, I don't know, you know, I don't know what's in the stew or I don't know what it's in this meat. And then everybody looks up because, like, there's this questioning thing, you know, like, you're not supposed to question things. But he says, oh, but it's double plus good, eh? You know, and then they, everybody goes back to eating whatever the hell they're eating. You know, and it's like, <laughs> woo! <laughs> oh, yeah, oh boy, yeah. And and language was oppressive. That's why they were breaking it down yes, yeah. to like the barest and elements. Then, you know, could. what is it? Uh, you know, war is peace. Uh, Freedom is slavery. Is slavery, and um, oh, something is truth. Yeah. Um, so I actually saw something that ignorance is truth. Ignorance is ignorance is yeah. truth. And I saw, freedom I, of slavery, I, I saw something that kind of like freaked me out. It was like an advertisement. I think it was on like a Skittles package or something like that. But it was, um, what was it like? Oh man, I don't, I don't want to ruin it. But basically the point was like, you know, like joy or something or another was 
I don't want to say revolution because that wasn't the word, but was something. And it just reminded me of Orwell hell, you know, like, you know, war is peace. Well, we we redefine words by putting them together. And if you would have flipped them around, you would have been like, oh, no, that's a horrible thing to say. But because of the way it was, I wish I could remember exactly what it was because it's just one of those little bits of whatever you're in the gas station and you. Actually, Mm. Actually, I might have a picture of it. But yeah, it's it's just strange stuff. And you know, there's people who were trying to warn us, and they're you know they're not prophets like they're reading the future. You're just able to pick up on um, if you're really good, seemingly minute input that uh, all put together, you can figure out where it's going. And if it continues on the trend, then well, yeah. And if you understand a little bit of history, and you have a an interest in nuance. And understanding that things are never quite as black or white as they seem. You're trying to understand things from multiple perspectives so that you can get a more holistic view on what's happening and a greater understanding. Uh, that that can be helpful. That can be very helpful. we got to learn how to orient ourselves in this world where there's so many competing um, interests vying for our attention. And they're all quite tribal and polarizing these days, those voices that are the loudest in the extremes of any direction. Now, finding a way, what is that middle path through a time of chaos? I, I think Verveke has been showing us that. He's been revealing a, a way. The most comprehensive answer I've seen for answering like attending to the actual root of the many myriad crises that are ongoing right now in our world. Well, it, it, it's a, an attempt to actually do something about something instead of making prescriptions on based on how we think the world is Mm -hmm. and you know, Oh, the world is like this. So we got to do this. We got to do this. We just got to just stop oil. Right. Cause in this whole series, he keeps on helping us reveal to ourselves our capacity for self-deception mm-hmm. and in doing so he's helping us learn to constantly reframe things be be malleable and open in our thinking while still being critical and looking for ways that we can verify if something is actually true and real for us so that we can then act upon it well, and then understanding even how to embody ourselves so that when we act we're acting with the greatest amount of wisdom and carefulness. Yeah, it's interesting how often I hear the people say, "Oh, I don't, you know, I don't believe anything," or you know, like, or you know, yeah, why do you believe in are, that? How do you, you know, believe yeah. in that? I don't believe in anything because you know, whatever. And it's just like, well, don't that ain't that just stupid? You know, I hate to be that guy that's like, I don't believe in anything. It's like, well, obviously that's not true because you have to believe in certain things. But on the other end of that. If you don't believe in anything, you're going to fall for anything, right? There's a saying about that uh, that some wise guy came up with. I think the don't believe in anything might be a kind of giving up. You yeah. know, it's people are just exhausted and they're well, frank- di- becoming increasingly disenchanted. Yeah, and frank- well, frankly, I hear it mostly from people who never really got involved with anything and understanding what's going on in the world to begin with. And now that it's all crumbling down around them, there's a high pressure and it, it's, it's, uh, there are sometimes the ones jumping on the bandwagons, the loudest. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then the other thing that gets me For is safety. 
for fear of ostrich the, you know, I, ostracized. the I don't care but then they'll flip out when they hear a news story that's crafted mm-hmm. for their for them to be offended by, by for their per- personal. and then they do care it's like okay well obviously you do care so what do you care about and it's like well all we need is unity and I'm like okay well what the hell does unity mean? Because there's a lot of people that have used that word. You know, Mao used the word unity. Unity, what was it? Unity, conflict, unity. Mm-hmm. And look what happened with that. So it's like, yeah, you know, I get it. Unifying is a human race and everything. But what do you mean by that? What does that entail? Let's go deeper. And what is that. your version of unity? We have to yeah. understand where we are in history as well as where we are right now. And then, you know, and then there will be the argument of like, well, that's getting political and I don't want to be political. And it's like, well, unfortunately right now, everything has been skewed into being political. And now that our, and this isn't the, just the United States, but you know, everything has been politicized and we are in the United States yeah. where it is kind of our responsibility as a, you know, people that have inherited a system of self-governance to really kind of stay on top of what's happening yeah. Yeah. in our public affairs. Yeah. Not just, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's a, something of a burden but it's also a, a high responsibility and it's a great gift i mean what what a privilege to live in a nation where we value freedom liberty and justice and the now one- it's where we haven't been doing it perfect and we've made a hell of a lot of mistakes along the way some atrocious mistakes but we're humans and humans have been making mistakes in their individual nations for eons oh, and all ca- as despicable as our own here in this we new have country myths and stories about the about, yeah. about it we even it's- write stories about fictional universes that never happened to right, tell. Right. But this is the first time that we've done this on our own without an aristocratic. Well, now we have an aristocratic yeah, one elite, I, I would argue. But the point was to not be run by tyrants, to not be serfs under nobles and kings, but for everybody to have equal access to the market and to entrepreneurialism and to self-achievement and all of that and, and well back when and it's not perfect i mean we still got a lot of work to do in realizing this american dream but it spawned so many other great democracies mm-hmm. and you know republic democracies and congressional based countries around the world for a reason because it's pointed in the right direction and we are still figuring out how to calibrate this thing but or we can work on it together instead of othering one another and what we were talking about just a couple minutes ago now it's Everyone's jumping into teams and tribes, and you know we talk about unity sometimes. But are you talking about unity in a way that is disparaging and cutting out others and seeing others with the worst kind of blanket overgeneralizing stereotypes, like everyone that votes for this guy is that, that and yeah. you know so on and so forth? I mean, it's we, we become so identified with our tribes and we forget how to be individual humans. And individual, the root of individual is to recognize that you are indivisible and interconnected with everything and everyone around you, but you have your own unique expression, which is something that I think would appeal to a lot of the radicals right now. It's mm-hmm. like your unique expression doesn't need to be snuffed out, but we are all in this together and we got to stop demonizing and dehumanizing one another. Huh? And one thing too, is like what we really ought to get back to is when we see our side going wrong, calling it out. Yeah, man. And you know, really Oh, DJ, it. when have you ever done that? I don't know, man. Like I used to be on the left, super liberal and everything, and I'm seeing it going wrong it's and funny I call it out and I, I, there's hell to pay people for People got mad at me for calling out Obama. Yeah. It's just like, and like, like, why don't you ever call out Trump? And I'm like, I, I have called out Trump, but but you're not going to remember it I'm because also, it probably didn't hit your feed because it won't piss you off. But I, you know, I, <laughs> I, yeah, and and I I also am not seeing as many people call out our own side when it goes mm-hmm. ro- uh, wrong mm-hmm. and astray. But I I see it's very very popular 
to talk about Trump as you know on on into insanity. So it's 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 you know the TDS is real. Sad to say. Yeah, but and for people who don't know, that's Trump, Trump derangement. specifically derangement syndrome. You can yeah. have like a canine derangement syndrome that gives you a severe phobia and hatred of dogs. That happens. Um, same thing with, um, you know, you could have cultural derangement syndromes that lead to uh, mass levels of genocide, um, as yeah. what happened to... Well, they, they made a mutant monster out of a guy that already had enough, you know, inept social graces that you, you could capitalize on in real life. But he's not this mutant monster that he's been, been made out to be. It's hilarious. I mean... You know, the guy does not actually seem to be racist at all, though he, he's clever n- clipping of videos seem to show yeah, him to be well. as such. And not, I'm not a fan of this kind of dishonest tactic. I don't want us to win by any means fair or foul. I want us to win fairly, and I don't even want my side to win. I want humans, because, you know, what, I don't have a side. My side is earthlings. It's life on this planet. Mm. You know, I... I don't see the mm. points in becoming so ideologically possessed that we think only our tribe, only our side is right. Yeah. I think that's obscene. At the very least, we can recognize, say, like with a Trump figure or somebody else, no matter how bad you think they are, chances are they're no worse than the swamp rats your that side. you're following yeah. or that you would much rather have that maybe isn't on your side but would be the, what you think of the lesser of two evils. Like When you get down to it, the ruling elite in this country and in the world are pretty sick and dark people that used to be a left liberal thing to say mm-hmm. now i'm a right-wing conspiracy theorist and i'm like guys dude i'm a slow i'm a slow moving thing i'm a rock that gathers lots of moss man and <laughs> yeah no like you all used to talk about this yeah. we used to be the pro peace yeah. uh, not a fan of war side of the spectrum still um, still don't like those the of war. us that identify with liberalism and i don't even think there's anything wrong with liberals when people on the right are upset with what's happening on the left they should be, you know, it's helpful to point out we're talking about leftists, not liberals. True liberalism uh, is what helped found this country. Like, you, you can be a left liberal. Like, so left is, is statism, and right is basically mm-hmm. individual anti statism. And then you have authoritarian and libertarian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can be libertarian left. You can't go super far libertarian left because that automatically goes to authoritarian because it's statism, and statism has a curve. That leads up into authoritarianism. Well, I, I, yeah, I, 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 I try. I was trying to come up with a better plot, and I realized the further left you go, well, it all further, goes in a circle eventually, I guess. But no, it does circle back around. But like the further there's up, authoritarian left right now. Yeah, well, that's the thing. We've, you we can equate that with the far left. We have an idea of the far right, but the far right's been over exaggerated well, no, because not everyone that voted for Trump was far right. Well, I think you can a small even minority, of you people. know, like Green Party people or Social Democrats or Democratic Socialists or most of the Democrats we have are on mm-hmm. the authority, authoritarian top side of the left. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now there's a few that are more individualists, but that skews closer to center. And on the right, you can get top right authoritarian rightism, but that's like a king, a feudal lord, or a mm-hmm. top exec CDO. Mm-hmm. And that's horrible. The bottom far right bottom corner is true, like pure anarchism, ultimate mm-hmm. individualism, which doesn't really work. Right. So, you know, we need some kind of. The Social chart skews structure. up always. The further right or left you go, it always skews up into authoritarianism. Yeah, until we're perfect little angels, we're not going to achieve anarchism. But it's a beautiful ideal for us to strive towards. To well, be mature the... enough beings to be able to manage ourselves 
so that we don't need a government uh, in the way that we traditionally see them. Well, you know, like some decentralized, autonomous node networks is a great idea for future civilization. But how do we become mature enough to pull it off? I think that's the great question of our time. We got going for us is for the most part, like handicapped parking spots. Most people don't park in them, Mm -hmm. not because they're going to get the $10,000 fine or whatever the hell it is. They don't, or a hundred dollar fine or wherever you're at. Most people don't park in it because they're like, yeah, you know, handicapped people, it's easier for them to get the someone might need it. Yeah. Um, someone now, would, mind you, there are people who still say like, screw it. But like most people not many. don't need the law to tell them to just go ahead be and not decent. be, a, they just need a reminder like, Hey, this is the spot that we yeah. allow this to happen. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like, dro- you know, drop offs in the back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have a law that says it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Let's, well, let's get into these notes before we get carried on any longer here. So we've got a, uh, a short recap that we'll do here. This was re- of our last episode. Religio perennial problems and uh, uh, reverse, reverse engineering in, enlightenment. Part one, yeah. And the first proposal was moving off of sacred, like a sacred object, to sacredness. What is this? Se- separating the supernatural idea of sacred from actual sacredness, which does seem to occur cross culturally, and. So we're, we're trying to move beyond the two worlds mythology and to a form of spiritual realization that can be in contact and communication with science, that science can measure and understand and so that we can help heal science because it's, you know, it becomes quite an ideology itself. There's a lot of certainty that creeps into scientism that can occur and spirituality on its own in a two worlds myth- mythological framework seems to be separated separative as well so bringing sp- science and spirituality back into partnership and communion as they were previously in history in parts of this world such as in ancient greece seems to be a very healthy marriage for our societies mm-hmm. uh, so the proposal the tao is not necessarily supernatural or absolute it is actually something that is immeasurable inexhaustible I'm, i know i'm jumping forward but we're yeah, gonna not go too deep on the notes because we've spent about 25 minutes already warming up well, let me let me just go ahead go through this real quick because i got some points that right on you yeah. made up go ahead man. the source of sacredness is not necessarily sacred to us uh, relevance realization is not about detecting what is inherently relevant relevance mm-hmm. does not have an essence it is evolving sacredness yes. as say we are looking at sacredness as the inexhaustible uh, inexhaustibleness of this reality Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when it comes to the object, the object is not the source of the sacred because the object, um, like objects are combinatorially explosive. Nothingness is beyond, no, excuse me, no thingness is beyond the frame. Yes. The, so a symbol like the, the cross. The, is, pro, the process is ever ongoing. Ever ongoing, yeah. So yeah. the symbol of the cross can itself be inherently sacred. It's pointing to something that is inherently, inexhaustibly unfolding so it's pointing to the infinite what it points to is sacred and this is we it itself is shared not, this analogy it, it last itself time. is not the sacred yeah the finger you know you can get confused with the finger pointing at the moon the finger's pointing at the moon that's what it's pointing you to look at so we are we can be worshipful of something perhaps and reverential towards something but it is the inexhaustible fount that is the true sacred and that's and we constantly get confused this is why our cultures get into wars and this is how we might help ameliorate that by bringing about this understanding, this common understanding 
that, well, sacredness, what the, all of our symbols and God figures are pointing to is that inexhaustible, immeasurable source from which we all came that is, maintains existence yet remains an unfathomable, unknowable mystery. So that, that I, I love that he points this out. This is a really deep concept, but it's, it's very well articulated in this episode, episode 36, the previous guy. So check it out if you like. Uh, if you'd like to uh, dig deeper into this. Yeah, and, and this method that he's going through is freeing us from the two-world mythology, and I'll call it a fa- fallacy because, yeah, if there was two worlds, you'd still exist in it, and it would be one world, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has some steps that he goes through and that he wants to go through to do this. Is what, The first one is understanding the machinery of fittedness as integratable with science, uh, which we've talked a lot about in this series so far. Um, mm-hmm. And then the next step is show how the model of uh, relevance realization addresses history. So um, going through history, how we realize things, but also how we can use a theory of, well, um, not the theory of relevance realization. Well, yeah, the theory of relevance realization to analyze the past. That's right, yeah. So we're in this meaning crisis, yep. which has historical factors yep. and structural structural factors, which present us perennial problems, problems. repeating problems yeah. throughout history. The yeah. perennial, they keep coming back. And to deal with the perennial problems, we developed wisdom cultivation practices, right? Mm-hmm. Like you know, um, whether it's sitting around the fire and doing the stocking of the deer thing, or going to a monastery yeah. and learning high level. The Buddhists coming up with yeah. the the middle mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so what do we need to do to fix well f- first off historical factors as well as perennial problems can undermine our wisdom cultivation practices yes we could just get rid of them outright or we can pervert them in some mm-hmm. way or another um so we yeah. can to fix the meaning crisis we can use the relevance realization machinery to give a response to the historical factors mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. Uh, and he referenced uh like uh, what was it third generation or 4e cogsci um, Cognitive so, science, yeah. yes, and then relevance, uh, realization, and religio to address the perennial problems mm-hmm. and reverse engineer, um, the uh, reverse yeah. engineer our uh, enlightenment practices or re- mm-hmm. make new ones out of you know it's like coming across the alien spaceship and making one for yourself, right? So finding a way to rearticulate our worldview, our sense of sacredness through religio to afford self transcendence. Mm-hmm meaning and involvement with this world because we are indeed in a mode of duck modal confusion our capacities for cultivate cultivating wisdom and enlightenment or salvation are running headlong into the fact that we are so prone to self-deception and self-destructive behavior so the very thing that gives us the strength and the potential for growth through innovation also causes us to be prone to self-deception, recognizing this within ourselves, constantly being willing to reframe and reorient ourselves together through a mode of being here in the world rather than a mode of having needs. You know, we're coming from our place of being, appreciating one another. It's it's the agape love orientation that Christ demonstrated for the world. All right, so, yeah... Um, of relevance, realization, and religio. There's mm-hmm. three aspects to it. There's the functional, structural, and the developmental. We didn't really talk about the developmental in last episode. So on the functional level, we have 
um, RR, which is our self-organizing and self-IDing aspect. Um, mm-hmm. Then we have um, self-reflection, and then we have, uh, yeah, and, and self-reflection. Yeah. Now, these can go wrong. So on the self-organizing end, you can get into parasitic processing, yeah. which is a complex of behaviors and heuristics that lead you down a negative spiral instead of a growing spiral. Mm-hmm. And then you have this self-reflection um, and it goes wrong by making you uh, you being incapable to act because you're over-reflecting. And mm-hmm. we get into the reflective um, reflectiveness gap. This is mm-hmm. where it goes wrong when you're stepping back too far. Like, because you need this gap in order to get agency. But if you go too far into this gap, you lose agency. So mm-hmm. you get a bell curve effect. Yep. Um, and we have to shift. You know, um, we have to shift our thinking from say being thirst. So uh, the example was shifting your thinking from being, uh, you know, you're thirsty, you're wanton of liquid. You shift it to now you are aware of your thirst. So now mm-hmm. it introduces curiosity. Mm-hmm. But if you don't shift, then you go too too far into the reflectiveness gap. Mm-hmm. And, and too mm-hmm. deep into it, and then you become incapable of acting, and you lose your agency. And and it's you know, a colloquial term is analysis paralysis when you're trying to like you know remodel or make a decision on what you want to do. You just yep. get so much and so much and so much, and then you can't make any decision. Just like poor Hamlet, and then everybody died. Yeah. Um, and then the other aspect of fun- functional relevance realization is uh, self identity, which can go awry as modal confusion. So we're switching yeah, into our yeah. having mode instead of our being mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that one we talked about, particularly in the episode about uh, Prince Siddhartha, so the Buddha, and him having to leave the pa- when he first left the palace and seeing people who are sick, old, and dead, mm-hmm. you know, and then realizing that what he has in his palace isn't what actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. So, yeah. and we're doing all of this again because Verveki wants to reverse engineer enlightenment to understand what were the perennial problems that the ancients who developed these different self-realization and enlightenment techniques, what were they trying to ameliorate? What were they trying to heal? What were they trying to fix? And what is the set of practices that we can today continue to utilize to ameliorate these perennial problems and accelerate this healing process because we got to counteract this downward spiral mm-hmm. that seems itself to be growing at an exponential rate. So he gets into the structural yeah. end and briefly, so in, in the structural end of um, RR and religio's meta-meaning and agent-arena relationship, mm-hmm. within meta-meaning where that goes wrong, you could be led into absurdity, anxiety, or alienation. And absurdity, yes. well, let's start with the self first. Um, alienation is you being separated from your peer group, other people. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, anxiety is uh, you, wait, you and yourself. Well, okay, so absurdity is Agency, you and the world becoming disconnected. Yeah. You in a stable yeah. relationship with the world. The world just, reality falls out from underneath yeah. you and things are absurd. Uh, anxiety is you and yourself. Yes, that's what it was. So a disconnect between you and and your and alienation is you and others and this all leads yeah. to domicide. Yes. Um yes, so and what is domicide? Domicide is the death of the home whether Lovely. it's your actual home or yes. your feeling of being home, yes, the loss homeness. of the sense of home. Yes. Um yes. And then the agent arena where that goes bad is you got 
existential inertia, which just keep going and keep mm-hmm. going and keep going. And then on the other end of that, you have the ex- existential ignorance. I don't know. Like you'll never, you'll never know what it's like to have a kid unless you have one, but should I do it? And then, and, da, da, da. <laughs> yeah, right, and right. those together give you existential entrapment. So mm-hmm. in agent arena, it's existential entrapment is, is where that goes bad. Yes. And, and you that know, is what has given us the meaning crisis. Yeah. And so he goes into absurdity more here. Um, uh, it's a um, perspectival and uh, participatory thing. And he brought up Nagel and Nagel's argument. And I'm not going to go too far into that argument. More, um, I'm just going to bring up the story that he um, brought up. Well, real quick, the argument basically is when we're making certain arguments like, you know, if I if I could live forever, things would be better. It's like, well, that just leads to absurdity because how does length of time, if anything, the length of time... Would, would lead you to have a horrific life probably to become more absurd and yeah. you know and so the argument become is be, or excuse me or after the fact of the absurdity of the argument like at, so not mm-hmm. explain it too well but, but people that say life is meaningless just because you know yeah. i'm so small yeah well we're compared to like the span of yeah. time and the and how big yeah. this universe is so well if you lived forever yeah you know you know, how absurd would life be then? And, you know, it's, and you are only in, you're actually giant to atoms, but you're small according, you know, we're exactly, we're the exactly in the, the middle. Universe. We're exactly in the middle of size. But that's what you is know. probably Stuck here in more the accurate. Yeah. You. Um, so we need to drop out of the proposal, the pro- proposal knowing. Pro- propositional Propo- knowing. Yeah, because yeah, so we're always making proposals and this is having mode. This is, I'm making propositions and stating beliefs yeah. to identify myself rather yeah. than being in the being mode yeah. where the self is more amorphous. You know, it can grow and it can change and you're abiding in this moment and you are in concert in relation with this moment as it is, you know, more and more so as you are increasingly capable of reframing reality and you are able to reflect on reality. So you're not just being pulled around by things and thinking of everything as separate and other and blaming the world outside for all your problems. You're actually feeling yourself in a relation with everything. And it's it's a different kind of dance. So Nagel has an example in Everyday Absurdity, and this is paraphrasing, but basically Tom is this guy that loves this woman. He's freaking out all day, like being like, you know, I need to call you to tell you everything you know, like all my love and express this. So he finally just realized how much I, I appreciate you. Yeah, and he thinks about these yeah, nice things so, that he yeah. says, and he just yeah, like kind so, of expresses his love. So what ends up happening is he waits all day. And then finally he picks up the phone and calls her and says, hears her voice and then just starts unloading. And before you go, like all this stuff. And then please leave a message after the beep. Right. And that's kind of humorous. It's absurd, but humorous because, you know, we can come to, uh, it, a, a resolution at the end of it but absurdity is when it's not humorous it's horrific there is mm-hmm. no resolution mm-hmm. to it you know like the the example i made last week is well he's having the same thing that he needs to tell his mom and he goes to leave a message but then he gets a call immediately after he gives off the phone that his mom's dead that's not humorous. Mm. It does not resolve no. itself. It just leads into horror and mm-hmm. awfulness. Mm-hmm. So absurdity can be funny, much like Monty Python and crew, or it can be 
lead into horror on the borderline of horrific or lead into yeah yeah and um the last thing i have um so all all this that we were talking about in this episode in these notes um even though it's the mm-hmm. thing that can f- free us from entrapments and help us understand the universe is the very same machinery that can lead us into more suffering the dukkha suffering the mm-hmm. unbalancing and shaking apart we have to be able to recognize suffering. when that's happening and another thing i picked up from this episode is he kept on pointing out that you know how absurdity and horror is telling us some things cannot be easily made sense of though or or so we as such experience a loss of connectedness horror domicide absurdity this causes us to experience a sense of disconnection. And that's why absurdity can become hor- horrific. Life can become horrific. Yep. So that's it. Yeah. All yep. of our, our relevance realization machinery has a dark side and it presents as these perennial problems. Very machinery that makes us adaptable also makes us self deceptive. So now we're going to continue reverse engineering enlightenment so that we can understand how to optimize practices as we continue to grow forth as humans awakening from this meaning crisis so yep. mr john verbeke is in the house and that intro wasn't too long considering we went for like 15 minutes uh jibber jabbing oh, we about went like life. 25 minutes talking and then <laughs> then we did a good uh we're trying, about 40 trying to keep in, it so concise thank you guys so, so but yeah it's actually nice our, our viewer retention rate is actually not that bad like percentage wise of the video and we do long ones so thank you for those who stick around for large portions of this, I do realize it can yeah, be a lot. You're welcome to listen after the fact. If you can't listen to it during the live stream, mm-hmm. these are always going to be backed up on YouTube and on all of the various social media networks. We're also on Facebook and Twitch. So, you know, and actually we're on Twitter, but I haven't started putting videos up there yet. We should, we should be working on that too. But there's links on Twitter. If you go to our Twitter, that'll pull you towards where you can watch some stuff and yeah, I mean, you know, you can listen to this rolling down the road on Spotify, guys. So make sure you like and subscribe. Give us a good rating on Spotify if you're enjoying the show. Smash the like and subscribe here on Actually Podcast. And also, let's throw some love and some likes and subscribes over to Professor John Verveke. Look up John Verveke on YouTube or check the links in the summary for this video. We appreciate you guys supporting this movement. He's starting to do shorts now, too, so you might find some of them popping up. Yeah, man. Uh, so, All right, guys, so this is it. This is episode 37 of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, Reverse Engineering Enlightenment, part two. We drop it in. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So last time we were taking a look at a proposal that we could uh, understand the the sacred, that which causes the experience of sacredness um, in terms of a transjective inexhaustibility, a kind of deep anagoge between the nothingness of your ever-evolving relevance realization and its mysterious depths and the no-thingness of a reality that is ultimately combinatorially explosive and dynamically changing itself. And that we can acknowledge the, uh, the important role of the symbolic, the way it helps us to engage and activate 
the primordial aspects of religio and go through processes of re-exaptation, causing new emergent abilities so that we're opening, as we're opening up the world, we are also opening up ourselves in response to that. But I cautioned against uh, confusing indispensability, your own or our collective at times, uh, indispensability with any kind of claims of metaphysical necessity or an absolute essence. And that was part of the, the larger critique that relevance can't have an absolute essence, that, and therefore we shouldn't think of the sacred ultimately as a supernaturally endowed, absolutely essential form of relevance. So I then propose to you that part of what we saw at least the experience of sacredness doing was helping to facilitate the higher order relevance realization, the meta-realization uh, between homing us against the domicide, the meta-assimilation, but also causing us to confront the numinous, the meta-accommodation. And so the sacred is doing that. But I also proposed that we needed to look at this more deeply. We needed to look at how the sacred helps us address perennial problem. So that took us into opening up and becoming a little bit more um, analytic about the meaning crisis. There's two components uh, to the meaning crisis. There are the historical factors, which we traced in detail at the beginning uh, of the first half of the series. And now an issue that is now one we need to focus on, the perennial problems. Because in some sense, the experience of sacredness, the attempt to activate, accentuate, accelerate, articulate, and appreciate religio, should address our perennial problems. The perennial problems are, of course, perennial because the very machinery of religio that makes us adaptive also makes us perpetually vulnerable to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. Most cultures cultivate an ecology of psychotechnologies, typically in the form of a religion, for addressing the perennial problems. But that set of psychotechnologies has to be fitted into a legitimizing and sustaining worldview. In some sense, the psychotechnologies have to be integrated with sacredness. What's, of course, happening for us is, and we'll come back to this in more detail here, the historical factors have undermined that possibility for us, undermined the, the experience of sacredness, the, all of the ways in which we can cultivate an ecology of psychotechnologies for enhancing religio, because we do not have a worldview in which, within which that project of meaning-making, self-transcendence, the cultivation of wisdom, the affordance of higher states of consciousness, the realization of Gnosis, we do not have a worldview that legitimates or encourages that. And so people are forced, as I said, to cobble together uh, in a dangerously autodidactic fashion their own personal responses to perennial problems uh, without traditions, guidance, communities, well-worked-out um, sets uh, like I say, of practices, 
well vetted, well developed. And so that means they're often bereft when they face the perennial problem. So responding to the meaning crisis has two components to it. And that's why I call it awakening from the meaning crisis, because it has not only the response of trying to rearticulate a new worldview in which the project of enhancing religio, again, gets validation, is properly situated, encouraged, facilitated, legitimated, etc. But we also need to understand what the set of practices, the ecology of psychotechnology, would look like that would allow us to address the perennial problems. And I'm proposing that the scientific account of relevance realization and religio, and I've already tried to give you some allusions to that, we're going to come back to it uh, full force, will give us a way of articulating a worldview in which we can resituate the project of meaning making. And of course, the, the, the linchpin of that argument is the idea that at the core of the meaning making is relevance realization, and relevance realization be, can be given a naturalistic explanation. One that hopefully still does full justice uh, to the experience of sacredness. But I want to concentrate, as we began last time, on the perennial problems. Because ultimately, that's the final thing. If I come up with a historical response, and it does not actually afford the addressing of the perennial problems, helps people to ameliorate and perhaps alleviate the perennial problems, then this project has failed. So we need to start discussing the perennial problems and developing this thesis more extensively that the very machinery that makes us adaptive makes us susceptible to self-deceptive, self-destructive patterns of behavior. So we talked about looking at some of the core features of religio, right? So we've got functional features. Right? And here we have, of course, self-organization. And I tried to develop that very uh, explicitly, it's not just vague self-organization, it's opponent processing, opponent processing that's making use of self-organizing criticality, relationship between compression, particularization, and other such trade-off relationships, etc. Uh, we've got right, self-identification, that process by which you're creating an identity, and you've got self-reflection, your ability to step back and reflect on your own cognition, which of course was made so powerfully present in the actual revolution with the advent of second-order thinking. We took a look at the structural. This has to do with the components of the agent arena relationship, the ways in which self is connected to the world, self is connected <coughs> to self, and self is connected to others. Right? 
And then we looked at the developmental. And I sort of lay, left that as a placeholder because I just wanted to give a quick overview last time, but I wanted to go in and draw this together because what we've been talking about throughout the last few lectures is the idea that your cognition is inherently developmental. It functions by developing, it develops by functioning, it's an, right, so because it's inherently self-organizing, it develops right, by functioning, it functions by developing, and this is qualitative development, right? What I mean is you get a capacity for self-transcendence. There's not only an increase in w what you know, but it, uh, an increase in the kinds of things you can know, the kinds of things you can do, right? And this is ultimately some kind of process of optimization. So there's a developmental trajectory. And then what you can see, right, is some of the problems we've already talked about. The parasitic processing. In the notes for this lecture, I will put uh, references to the previous lectures in which I have talked about these in detail. So if you, in order to avoid uh, useless repetition, you can go back and look at the presentation. Right, but this is, if you remember, you, there's a bad event and it spirals off and it gets this very complex uh, self-organizing system that takes on a life of its own, becomes very compelling, very adaptively resistant to our attempts at intervention, etc. Okay, so this is modal confusion. This is the right from, but very much you can also see it uh, being addressed by the Stoics. You can see it being addressed by Buddhism, as Batchelor argues. This is to get into confusion between the having and the being modes, or the kind of I that you are. The, you know, are you in an I yet, I thou, etc. Self-reflection, last time we talked about this. This is the reflectiveness gap. This comes from the fact that what we can do is we can step back and look at our own uh, processing, and this affords us, this gap affords us uh, regaining our agency from the chaos of being the impulsive wanton, but when we open up the reflectiveness gap too much, uh, we get also a loss of agency, we get the tragedy of Hamlet, and of course some middling position is not the answer there, because at times you have to be highly reflective, at times you have to be highly immersed, how, how do we answer that? The problem here, right, it, with the self-world relationship is absurdity. The, the, as I said, this is the agent-arena relationship. And we talked about absurdity here and made clear that all of the arguments for absurdity, like what happens a million years from now, it doesn't matter, I'm so small, I will die, none of these things actually are arguments that can legitimately lead to a conclusion of absurdity because they're in many ways, and this was Nagel's point, they're, they're, they're just bad arguments, they're fallacious arguments. Now, dismissing the arguments is not to dismiss the person who makes the argument. I hope I made that clear last time. If not, I'm, I'm trying to do that now because people are trying to articulate with these pseudo-arguments something real that is happening to them, something that is very important. So the arguments are after-the-fact expressions uh, rather than the generators. 
And the, the main peak here, and this of course goes into, right, you can see how all of this is our perspectival participatory uh, ways of being, ways of knowing. Okay, but what's here is a clash of perspectives. class of perspectives. I mean, we did the example of Tom who's calling Susan and how in humor that clash of perspectives can be resolved usually by playing, uh, like equivocating between terms or meanings or getting people to make a connection they hadn't made before. But in absurdity, and, and I think there's, like, I think there's a, a, an overlap like this, right, where you have humor as a resolvable clash of perspectives and then you have absurdity here right? And then there's a, an overlap zone, and like I said, there's a lot of humor. Uh, my, my prototypical example, and tells my age when I was growing up, is the, the humor of Monty Python, in which, right, you get a, a lot of absurdity. But then it, you get what becomes irresolvable, clash. It's undermining religio in some way, uh, undermining your, your agency in some way, and that's sort of pure absurdity. Uh, self with self, this goes back to what we talked about with Tillich, right, and anxiety, uh, inner conflict, and what we need here, right, is to, again, think about the ways in which this is connected to, right, um, self-deception, uh, because the inner conflict, remember Plato, uh, often skews your salience landscape and makes you susceptible to bullshitting. I'll talk about bullshitting in connection to this. Uh, overall, right? Of course, this is alienation. This is our inability to connect to other people, something that is often exacerbated through social media by the way these other per, uh, perennial problems and self-deceptive behavior can be magnified in social media. Uh, so we, we can be modally confused and think by having a lot of connections, we're overcoming our alienation and loneliness, but of course, that's not the case. Uh, we can... Uh, 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 exacerbate the social media uh, by falling into a sort of pretend, uh, pretended narrative and things like that. Okay, here we talked about right, existential inertia. This is when you need to move between worldviews, make, uh, make a worldview viable that you're not currently in. We're going to talk a lot more about um, the work of Agnes uh, Callard and aspiration, but the, the point here, and, and going back again to the seminal work of L.A. Paul, uh, but this is basically a need for anagoge. How do I anagoge my way out of this worldview into another worldview? <coughs> and then, of course, there's existential ignorance, a point made salient by L.A. Paul and also picked up by uh, Agnes Callard in her book on aspiration, that Right? We can't sort of reason our way through this. We can't infer our way from a weaker logic to a stronger logic. We can't infer, we can't propositionally come up with the perspectival knowledge that we're lacking with the, with the participatory knowing that we do not currently possess and the identity that we are not currently uh, cultivating. So right, all of that, uh, of course, can come together and this was mythologized, and I mean that in a complimentary sense, right? Remember how I'm using mythos? That this is myth mythologized by the Gnostics of existential entrapment. Feeling trapped. Now, 
A couple of things before we move toward starting to um, address this. This is analytic. This is for theoretical purposes that these things are being distinguished and laid out, right? It is often the case, as I've already tried to uh, 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 indicate, that these things are interacting and exacerbating each other, right? That, right, you can be experiencing absurdity and it, be, it can be really contributing to your existential inertia, right? You could be overthinking things and getting sort of stuck, and that it, right, might be also contributing to your existential ignorance, or it might be contributing to your modal confusion because you can't remember the being mode because you're caught up in having a lot of thoughts and trying to have a lot of beliefs. Right? I, I'm not going to try and map this out because the, the, the permutations of the ways in which these interact and afford and right, exacerbate uh, each other um, is very complex, which of course is why the perennial problems are uh, so pressing on people. Now what I want to try and do is to show you what I, I'm, I want to try and show you uh, how we can salvage from um, the legacy so many uh, technologies uh, for addressing the meaning crisis. We back in the saddle again. Sorry. <laughs> All right, so, guys. So let's let's recap what we just watched. Yeah, so it was pretty much just a recap of what we like all of our notes from. Last episode. Last episode, we yeah, talked he's about. He's explicating a little bit further on things mm -hmm. here and there, but it's definitely help. Just remapping it. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem space that we're looking at. Yeah. So we got the functional end where you have source uh, self organization, self IDing, and self reflection. Mm -hmm. Where they go bad, the self organization. Uh, which actually, so he expanded on what self organization is. The self organization is is all these little trade off relationships, the opponent processing. Mm -hmm. Um, all that together is is within the self organization end, and the bad end that go you know if it goes bad it's parasitic processing. Parasitic process. Self ID yeah. if that goes bad that's modal confusion. Self reflection when that goes bad it's an unoptimized reflection reflectiveness gap. That's right. Yeah. Um, and the structural end we have. So this is this, that's the functional end of our relevance realization machinery or yes. you know cognitive yes. how it functions how it functions yeah. Yes, much like looking at, you know, like an engine or something and breaking down how yeah. it functions. We're going to run through this fast, but before we jump ahead too much on that, let's just note, we're doing this because how we articulate religio itself should help us attend to perennial problems. Mm. We have any psychotechnologies uh, that we have to integrate to bring about the historical factor and integrate with sacredness mm -hmm. because previously the perennial problems have undermined this process of meaning making that we depend upon to be able to live a balanced state with one another. So we have uh, the two components to responding to the meaning crisis that he outlines, um, that we need to rearticulate a new worldview, enhancing religio, and such that it's properly instantiated. And, it, and to do so, we're going to need to define what sets of practices work best 
for us and how can we integrate them? And then the proposal is we're going to bring a, a he's sharing a theoretical framework for a scientific account of sacredness and religio, the experience of self-transcendence to help us reinstantiate meaning making in a way that does justice to sacredness still. So we're going to find a way to theoretically understand this so that we can better create the new systems. And that's, that's kind of setting us up there. So Let's let's yeah. jump back. So, so DJ just described the functional side, and there's three different sides here that we're yeah. looking at: functional, structural, and developmental. So the functional side. Now we're jumping to the structural, which is our agent arena realm. So yeah. you're so the agent to itself, or excuse me, the agent to the arena, so the world, the agent mm-hmm. to itself, and the agent to others. Mm-hmm. And so if you've got an issue with yourself in the world, that's a class clash of perspectives that yeah. we call that's the absurdity. experience of absurdity. Yes. And if it's self to self, it's self deception, the anxiety mm-hmm. and self to other conflict. is yeah. alienation, much like, you know, mm-hmm. what he explained with, um, you know, the, the social media and stuff. You think, oh, well, I'm having so much more and I'm, I'm building my tribe and my people, but I feel more and more and more alone. Yep. It's very similar to the bell curve you get with, um, <laughs> With the reflectiveness gap, you know. Yes. Well, if you don't have enough social contact, then you don't have a relationship with others. So your agent mm-hmm. arena r- relationship is limited. Then there's an optimal point, and then there's a point where it's too much, and you lose your mm-hmm. ability to have a relationship with others. That's right. Yeah, um, you can go too far out to be able to come back home and relate what you saw, yes. basically. And we're doing all of this because each one of these facets of the downsides of our relevance realization cognitive capacities cause disconnection with ourselves and reality and so we've looked at the functional now we've gone over the structural the agent arena relationship between self world self self and self others Mm -hmm. now we're on to the developmental trajectory and he lays that out by giving us the framework of we develop by functioning by development and by optimization Mm -hmm. the downside of functioning is existential uh, inertia we yep. have a need for anagage yeah. for the process of self-transcendence. And if we don't get it, we experience existential entrapment. Yeah, and particularly when we when the problems of developing by function and functioning by development is mm-hmm. the existential inertia. Well, you'll never know until you do, but, you know, should I do and then I don't, and then, mm-hmm. then you're trapped. With yep. the, the two of these things, you don't have an anagogic relationship. Um and you That's don't right. and you don't have you don't you don't have the ability to understand by inference anymore mm-hmm. That's as right. far as because like how do you know what it's like to be dead or how do you know what it's like to be a kid or be have a kid if you've never had a kid or mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing and mm-hmm. these two together they well they entrap you yep. existentially right. yeah um and then there's optimization which is is seems to be the word of the word of the multi-episodes optimize you know, it's mm. not about maximize, it's about minimize, it's about optimize. Yeah, that's right. And that optimization means that you're constantly calibrating based off of what mm-hmm. you're dealing with in said arena that yeah. you're operating in. And so, you know, the functional, structural, and developmental ends of um, religio and relevance realization, the good and the bad all cross and form each other. That's right. And yep. you can't really make a map. Well, I guess you, you could can, try to. but it'd be very complex it to lay get, out, and it would take a lot of time, and that's not... And would it be worth it? That's the, well, that's, that's, for the, that's for the purpose. So he's laying out the theoretical framework so people can go and yeah. do that. 
but that's not what we're doing right now. We're yeah. just actually laying out the theoretical framework first and foremost. Well, it's kind of like the little robot. There's too many options for what the robot's going to do right now. And his next series after this, which is already ongoing and pretty far far way through, uh, after Socrates, the uh, process of developing wisdom has gone into in much more detail, and all of this is mapped out further. So, uh, so I think that covers everything. All of these things interact and exacerbate one another. We've got that now. We see that there's ups and downsides to our relevance realization that cause us to have either increased sense of connection or a decreased sense of uh, connection, of disconnection, in fact. So let's jump on in now and see where he's going to take us. I'm going to rewind about 20 seconds so that we can comprehend where we at. Boop, 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 boop. The reason why... Uh, the legacy. Uh, and... <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Ah, I, show you, uh, I love how hard how he's thinking. We can salvage it. from um, the legacy so many uh, technologies uh, for addressing the meaning crisis. The reason why I'm, I'm hesitating is because, again, um, I'm. I'm uh, this. This is genuine. I, I'm, there's a hubristic element here, and um, and I, I'm not just trying to say, oh, you know, taking it from you and leaving that behind. I, I, but I, I, but again, I, I'm trying to get a balance between respecting where we really are and what our situation really is, and respecting all of the tremendous heritage and legacy that has been given to us. And trying to get that balance is always in my mind. It's very difficult. But, okay, I, I'm going to go through these, each one. Uh, first of all, I'm just going to uh, sort of name so you can get an overall schematic, and then I'll erase the board, and I'll talk about each one in greater detail. Okay, so be patient, please. I'm asking for your patience. I'm just going to give some indications about how we address each one of these schematically so you can see uh, on the board, and then I'll step back and go through each one in more detail, and then um, how they're integrated together and what's also missing from this in an important sense. So what I'm going to propose here is the way you deal with parasitic processing is, and this is why this is number one in some sense schematically, it's overarching. You've heard me uh, talk about it before, with the idea of a, an ecology of practices, an ecology of psychotechnology, right? What you want to do is you want to cultivate a counteractive dynamical system. See, parasitic processing is a very complex dynamical system, and if you try and do one-shot interventions, it just reconfigures itself. What you need is to cultivate a uh, that you've internalized. It can't just be something you think about. It can't just be some right, ideological structure. It has to actually be an active dynamical system in you. And so what you're going to do, and again, I'll come back to this in more detail, you're going to try and cultivate a counteractive dynamical system because that is how you will be able to respond to the dynamical systems of parasitic processing. And then I'm going to propose to you that a prototypical, by no means exclusive, so that's how I'm using it, but a prototypical example of this is the cultivation of the Eightfold Path in Buddhism, which is a very, very perspicaciously represented by an eight-spoked wheel the integration, it, it revolves, it evolves, etc. So what we're looking for here is a counteractive 
dynamical system. Okay, modal confusion. We, we've already talked about this, and this is sati. Practices that are designed to invoke a deep remembrance of the being mode. Okay, the reflectiveness gap. You need the combination, the integration, the dynamic integration, not just a settled median point. You need the dynamic integration of immersion and creative flexibility. We know a state that does that. We're going to come back to this. But that's the flow state. You need to be cultivating the flow state in, in important ways. Okay, the clash of perspectives. This is going to take, again, so this, what I put on the board right now initially, is going to seem like what? Uh, so again, give, give me some time. I'm just going to put it on here. Uh, this is what Spinoza in, in the West called Scientia Intuitiva, or what in, uh, in Buddhism in the East refers to as Prajna. This is a state, right, in which you get the deep interpenetration of the perspectives. Right? So I'm just going to put up here, uh, and you, you're like, wow, what does that mean how you do that? Uh, Scientia Intuitiva. Prajna, but if you remember, just to foreshadow it, right, we talked about I can scale down, I can scale up, and then I can get this state of non-duality that is simultaneously scaling up and scaling down, and that actually alleviates the clash of perspectives. So we'll come back to this. Okay, so anxiety. This is inner dialogue. So this is to pick up, right, um, the idea of internalizing the sage. Right, as the child is to the adult, the adult is to the sage. I want to, like, the way, so an exemplary example of this is, that, you know, the Christians, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or the Buddhists, you have to realize your Buddha nature. Or the Stoics, I have to internalize Socrates. And again, if you turn these into ideas to be believed rather than, you know, practices that are, have actually been um, internalized and are, 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 are integrated into your the development of your identity, then you're not hearing what I'm saying. Okay, so alienation. I haven't talked as much about this, uh, but I'm going to come back to this more. Uh, this is to cultivate what Turner and other people call communitas. This is the sense of connectedness to other. And part of that is to try and recover what we had in Platonic dialogue. And what's happening right now is a whole movement called authentic discourse. I'm going to talk a lot more about that. The authentic discourse movement, right? Authentic discourse movement. But you just need authentic discourse here. Um, something like what we had in Platonic Dialogue, um, something like therapy, sort of both beyond. I'll come back to that uh, because this is a primary way of doing this. I gave you an extended argument uh, for how you respond to existential entrapment. Um, and, of course, this is uh, Gnosis, and that um, this Gnosis is going to have a connection to higher states of consciousness. There's something that's missing, right? Um, and what's missing is we need, of course, a, an overall framing of these things, that they, the, the way we're pursuing all of these and the way we're trying to integrate them together, right? I'll put, I'll put it here because I ran out of board on that side. All of this has to be within a wisdom framing. We're going to 
talk more explicitly, we're going to devote quite a bit of time to try and get at what can we now think about wisdom, given all the current uh, work within psychology and cognitive science and even neuroscience on wisdom. Right? Because of throughout all of this, we have to have a we have to have a cognitive style in which the amelioration of self-deception and the affordance of self-optimization are paramount. Okay? So I want to go through each one of these in more detail. Um, this is the overarching structure and then trying to, to, to bring it together. What is it I'm proposing to you? And, see, and here's where my concern about hubris um, is here, although I think there's a legitimate point I'm making. I'm trying to argue for a way in which we can reverse engineer enlightenment. Instead of keeping enlightenment as an obscure state surrounded by mystique and nostalgia, we need an account that recognizes what that mystique pointed to but exaggerates, which is the difficulty of enlightenment. But ultimately, if we have a kind of being, a ecology or psychotechnology that reliably and systematically, individually and collectively, allows us to address the perennial problems, I'm going to propose to you that that's what we should call enlightenment. If enlightenment is something above and beyond that, then I don't know what, what its value is. And it, if enlightenment is not directed towards this, I would say it is uh, not something of value. So I'm going to propose to you that insofar as we can give, using the theoretical tools we've cultivated together, relevance, realization, etc., Insofar as we can, you know, the work we've done on mindfulness, the work we've done on flow, right, all of it, insofar as we can give an account of this in terms that are alt ultimately naturalistic, that can be subject to scientific investigation, we will have, and, and this is, is this the final sort of challenge to the division given to us in the Enlightenment? We will have a scientific theory of en enlightenment and, and what it can mean for us. All right. So let's talk about some of these. I'll talk about it at length because they're more novel. Others I'll, I'll talk about more briefly because there's an extended discussion of them. So again, let's start with this notion of dealing with parasitic processing, which is an overarching uh, thing. And the idea here is, as I said, to cultivate a set of practices, and that's what you have with something like the Eightfold Path, where you're trying to, remember all of these, you know, right aspiration, right mindfulness, right concentration, etc. Remember that the right is not moral righteousness, the right is right-handedness, it's dexterity. And now to use language that we've developed, 
its right fittedness, its optimal fittedness, its enhanced relevance realization within each one of these. And what you have, right, is a set of practices that are interdependent with each other, mutually supporting, and self-rolling, becoming a self-rolling wheel. And if I have a set of practices that can take on a life of its own, right, you, have, you have the metaphors, right, in Buddhism, of you, like where you enter the stream, it takes on a life of its own. And initially what I'm doing, right, is I'm cultivating this practice and this practice and this practice, and I've got sort of, but then they start to, right, implicitly interact, reinforce, develop, and it starts to become a counteractive dynamical system in me. The, the Buddha told a famous parable about how to understand this. He, he talks about the goldsmith. Uh, and the gold is something inherently valuable, and you should think of your mind as something inherently valuable, uh, right? And he says, okay, so take a look at the goldsmith. The goldsmith just looks at the gold, no change is wrought. So if you're just sort of doing meditation and reflecting, nothing happens, right? The goldsmith has to heat up the gold, there, right? There has to be this right effort, the energy put in, maybe something like flow, right? But if the goldsmith just heats up the gold, the gold just melts and goes away, right? And then also there has to be the shaping, right? There, there has to be the reconfiguration, there has to be the cultivation of new skills, new abilities, new virtues. If you just hammer the gold, you'll, you'll smash it and wreck it. If you just heat it, it will melt. If you just look at it, you won't notice its imperfections. You'll, sorry, you, you, you will do nothing but notice its imperfections, uh, but nothing will change. So I need to look in order to notice, but I need to balance that, integrate that dynamically with heating and with, with, with hammering. And, and, and notice what I'm doing. I, I'm creating this higher order skill of being a smith by getting a set of practices that have a complementary relationship to them. Each one has strengths and weaknesses, and the strengths and weaknesses are fitted together, so you get something overall that can produce something that the individual skills can't do. So by getting this fluid ecology of looking, of heating, and of shaping, then the gold becomes well-shaped, and it becomes, as he says, wieldly. You can wield it very well. You can, it fits your hand and extends your capacity so well. So what you're getting there, right, is a, a, a strong recommendation for looking at this as, you know, cultivating an ecology of practices, getting sets of practices, sets of psychotechnologies that have complementary relationships to each other, organizing them together, right, and, and we do this all the time. We, 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 const we create constellations of lower order skills and techniques to build higher order skills and techniques, but we build it as a dynamical system, a counteractive dynamical system that can operate in many ways on many levels of our cognition and our consciousness and our being. So the way to deal with parasitic processing is to cultivate a counteractive dynamical system. And this is why this is an overarching thing. So modal confusion, we've already talked about this. We've already talked about the way in which uh, mindfulness practices and other practices like that can be drawn from stoicism, like the view from the Bob or objective seeing, can help us to remember 
sati, the being mode. Again, not as an idea, not as a belief, but as an existential mode that we can reliably reactivate and re-enter into in a viable and enriching manner. Okay, the reflectiveness gap and flow. So if I were to just speak this lecture impulsively, wantonly, just ah, it'll become chaotic, right? It'll tend to right, uh, probably fall into self-contradiction. It will be confused and therefore confusing. But if I'm constantly stepping back and reflecting on what I'm saying and engaging in self-criticism and then thinking, I, I, I'll also I'll choke. So what do I do? Well, I try to get into the flow state. Because the flow state is a state in which I am both, and Velman, by the way, argues for something very similar. He proposes Taoism, uh, and Taoism as a solution to the reflectiveness gap. Uh, and of course, as I've argued, Taoism is basically the religion of flow in many ways. The yin and yang, the out and the in, right? The making frame and breaking frame, etc. So, what you're trying to do is set up the practices that will afford flow, set up the conditions that will afford flow. And remember, we talked about the, the right kinds of conditions. And also, and this is where we're going to have to come back to wisdom, wisely cultivate your flow. Where and when and in what domains are you learning to flow? So I'm trying to get into the flow state here that will keep me sort of immersed and engaged uh, with the material, but also uh, make me hopefully uh, very sort of flexible um, and capable when needed. I don't mean to be self-congratulatory, but you know, where, where it's needed, hopefully insightful, uh, that there is that this is not just mechanical, that there's an element uh, of sort of, well, a, a flow to it, uh, almost like jazz, jazz with concepts uh, and jazz with argumentation. Okay, so let's come back to absurdity and come back to prajna. I'm going to talk about this again. We did talk about this before, but I want to remind you of it and that you are very capable of this uh, because your cognition is capable because of the way attention works. Because attention, I've put it up multiple times, right? The cat and other things. Your attention is simultaneously bottom up from the features and top down from the gestalt, right? And your attention, right, it, right the way you are related to the world it is one in which the world and you can be co-creating. This is actually something that Spinoza talks quite a bit about in the ethics, um, about how your experience is co-created by the, by, by the body and by the world. So, if you remember, Spinoza talks about this idea, right, when you're reading a, an argument, and his whole book, The Ethics, is an attempt to bring back blessedness and a sense of I would argue, sacredness within uh, a Cartesian scientific worldview. That's what's called the ethics. It means ethics in the older sense of becoming the best person leading the best kind of life, not just doing the morally correct thing. <coughs> but 
Spinoza talks about this kind of knowing. And, and what I realized when I was reading the ethics, well, studying the ethics, you have to almost do Lectio Divina with the ethics. You have to read it. You have to really let it soak into you. You have to try and get that worldview attuned. You have to, what's it like to see the world as Spinoza did? So you have to sort of study and practice the ethics. Um, so it's an extended period. And then he talks about this, and then I realized that the ethics was actually designed to do this. You have this tremendously tight logical structure, but the logical structure is trying to afford what he called scientia intuitiva, this sort of deeply intuitive knowing. Um, and what he means by that is that you've got this tremendous argument that reaches up to the sort of the largest scale of reality, right? But there's individual premises along the way. And the idea here is, th here's the analogy. So the premise is like the letter. The premises are like the letters, right? And the, o the whole, the argument of arguments, all the arguments constellated together. So I I'm going to call this the meta-argument, the arguments of arguments, right? So these go up into arguments, right? And then the arguments, right, go up into meta, the meta-argument. And this, of course, is like, you know, the, through words, into sentences kind of thing. And remember, we talked about how your attention is multiply layered in this way. And what can happen is, if you practice the ethics, you get to a place where you see the whole of the argument in each, the meta-argument in each premise, and you see how each premise and each argument fit into and contribute to the whole. Just like you're seeing the words in terms of the sentence and the letters in terms of the words, Right? And it's simultaneously bottom-up and top-down in a completely interpenetrating fashion. And what you get is you get a cosmic perspective that is right, interpenetrating with the perspective of your individual moment of thought. That's scientia intuitiva. There's a, right? the, 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 there is a complete interleaving of the perspectival knowing. Buddhists talk about something similar to this, prajna, a, 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 a kind of self-liberating state of wisdom. And it's a state um, in which, you know, as D.T. Suzuki says, you're, you're sort of simultaneously looking as deeply in as you can and simultaneously looking out as deeply as you can. And he quotes Eckhart, a Christian Neoplatonist, um, as a way of explaining this. You know, the, the, this, the I by which... I see God is the same eye by which God sees me. So the, 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 the perspective that reaches out and upwards to what's ultimate is the same as the perspective that is coming deeply into, uh, into me. And what you get, right, is you practice, you practice sort of scaling down as deeply as you possibly can towards something like the pure consciousness event and scaling down. And you practice scaling up to this sense of sort of profound resonant at-one-ment with everything. And then what happens is you get, I mean, when in practice you're all, you, you're all, you, you are alternating between them, but then as I mentioned, what eventually happens is you get non-duality. You're simultaneously as deeply in and as deeply down, sorry for these metaphors, as you can be, but as I said, they're often indispensable. You're simultaneously as deeply down and as deeply in and as simultaneously as out and as up as you can be. 
you're sort of at m maximal breaking frame, maximal so, uh, make sorry, maximal breaking frame and maximal making frame, and they are optimally dynamically integrated, like in the like they are in the in right sort of the most optimal profound insight you can have. So that state is a place that addresses absurdity. And you say, but it doesn't answer any of the arguments for absurdity. But that's the point. There is no argumentative response to absurdity because the arguments that are supposed to be generating absurdity don't generate absurdity. They're after the fact expressions of absurdity. What drives absurdity is perspectival clash. And if you can reliably realize a state in which you overcome the perspectival clash. And remember, you can overcome lower order perspectival clash in humor. And humor is, uh, has at the core of it a kind of insight and a kind of joy in that insight. You can have something like that. It's, there's a continuum. You can have the overcoming of the perspectival clash, which is prajnic state of non-duality that carries with it a kind of joy, a kind of insight, a kind of sciencia intuitiva, a deep intuitive knowing. And so that is very doable for us. So anxiety. So what anxiety is about, right, is there's a, a nebulous sense that, right, something is wrong and it's connected to inner conflict. You know, we see both, we see this in Christianity, the inner conflict. Uh, Paul, we see it in Plato, the inner conflict. Uh, there's different centers working according to different goals and they're at war with each other, and, and we suffer, and it's a, 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 it's, a, it's a dramatic sense of threat. But it has no specific target, of course, as fear does, because, of course, anxiety, the threat is endemic to you. So no matter where you go, you're sensing the threat, but there's nothing that the threat uh, can particularly attach to, because the threat has to do with your inner, the state of being at war within yourself. So we see across the traditions the idea of internalizing the sage to create an inner dialogue that helps to coordinate the various centers, gets them to talk to each other. And I think this is something where cognitive science can actually do give us tremendous help. There is, we've had a lot of increase in our knowledge of the various different areas of cognition, uh, even different kinds of centers processing in the brain, and how they work and how they're op operating. And what we need is right, an internalized representation, a model, a role model, and a role is a way of taking on a new identity, right? We need a role model for 
how we can engage in dialogue. And the proposal here, which is of course the platonic proposal we already saw, that if I can internalize my capacity and, 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 and developed by the Stoics, my capacity to interact with the sage, eventually I get that ability that I have only with the sage, I can have it with myself, within myself, and it means therefore that it becomes part of my metacognitive machinery, the way I dialogue with myself and get the various aspects of myself, the various centers to uh, dialogue with each other. And you can see various uh, versions of this. You can see Jung's use of active imagination as a way of trying to create an inner dialogue between different centers uh, of the psyche. Right? You can see uh, practices like Lectio Divina where I am reading the text and I am trying to get the text to speak to me is also allowing aspects of the different aspects of the psyche to talk to each other through the text. So there is a, a, a lot we can do. So as I mentioned to you, the process of identification where you're identifying with something like the, the sage, right? Obviously, it makes use of our capacity for internalizing the perspective of others, but it also requires our, what Polanyi called the capacity for indwelling, right? So remember, indwelling is when I'm, I'm perceiving through the pen, I'm indwelling it. So you not only have to internalize the sage, but you have to indwell the sage. You have to practice, right? And that fits within with other things. To practice trying to, in what does it look like, right? What is it like to see things the way the sage does? You have to seriously play at being the sage without pretense or arrogance or inflation. That's why wisdom is going to matter to all of this, right? So I practice indwelling the sage, right? And yet, you know, and, and people think, what would Socrates do? What would Aristotle do? What would Jesus do, right? And, and you have to regularly practice. So you practice in dwelling, and then you practice internalizing. And you practice in dwelling, and then you practice internalizing, right? And that is how you basically start to afford the internalization of the sage and the creation of your ability as Antisthenes said what he learned from Socrates so long ago, to converse with yourself, to, get, to enter into something like platonic dialogue with yourself. All right. What about alienation? So alienation takes us towards something talked about by Emile Durkheim and Victor Turner and others, communitas. Communitas is what you feel when you're watching with other people, what, what's happened recently, the raptors, and everybody was gathered together, and we have shared attention, and we are getting in sync together, and we have that sense of communing and communicating with each other, and there is a shared spirit amongst us all. That's communitas. Communitas. Communitas, right, is basically a way of getting collective flow going. But it's also something else. 
It's a collective flow in which we feel like there is real communication between people and something deeper. There's real communion. There's a sense of participating in a shared identity of some kind. So this has to be with, looked, th this has to do with sort of taking a, a careful look at our, our huh, careful look at the way in which our practices of communication and communing have been so undermined by bullshitting and um, modal confusion and, and an adversarial uh, uh, political culture, etc. And so what's been happening, and, and as I said, part of the gift of the video series is uh, I've gotten to meet more and more people who are trying to do this. Um, they're they're trying to, they're putting real time and talent um, into cultivating um, individual and communal responses to the meeting crisis. So I've got to uh, interact with, uh, for example, Peter Lindbergh, who's been introducing me to uh, authentic discourse, authentic relating uh, practices. I will talk a little bit about this in a minute. Um, uh, and then, I, uh, for example, I've got to meet uh, and have some interesting dialogue. The, in the one interview, uh, not one interview, sort of one dialogue with him is out and there's another one coming. Um, because what Jordan Hall is trying to do is he's trying to do two things in an integrated fashion. I see him trying to do. He's trying to free communication from the, the, the cultural grammar that has got us where we are. In that sense, he's trying to respond deeply to the history, not in theory, but in the actual practice. And, and that is bound up with, as my argument has tried to show, that is bound up with the project of trying to re-access, in a powerful and perspicacious manner, these other kinds of knowing and that making our communication and our communion not just a matter of propositional exchange or conflict, but trying to tap into right, the underlying procedural knowing and how that procedural knowing is dependent on the underlying perspectival situational awareness, the perspectival knowing, and how that is ultimately dependent on the participatory process of our ongoing evolving attunement from which the agent and the arena co-emerge. And so I see him trying to do that. I see him trying to create a way in which we can get what he calls coherence, a kind of communitas, I would say, that is directed towards engaging the collective intelligence of distributed cognition, and remember that most of our real-world problem-solving, contrary to the bullshit we tell ourselves about how we're self-made individuals, most of our problem-solving is done in concert, serious play, concert music, is done in concert with other people. And so what he is trying to do is create, a, he extends towards right, a state called coherence in which we are creating uh, a kind of communicast that is marshalling distributed cognition and its collective intelligence for simultaneously 
freeing us from the ways in which we are boxed in like the nine dog problem by our historical cultural cognitive grammar, access the other kinds of knowing and bring that to bear on the problems that we are facing. So I want to talk a little bit, I'll just introduce the idea. There's a book, I'm uh, uh, Cohering the Integral We Space, Enabling Collective Emergence, Wisdom and Healing in Groups. I've gone to um, a circling practice um, already. I, I'm not an expert in it. Um, I'm, I'm, I want to become one. I want, I, I want to take it, seri I take it seriously. Um, so I'm only gesturing towards it. But it is a communal practice in which um, this is my best way of trying to explain it to you. You're engaging in something like share, you're engaging in a mindfulness practice, something like platonic dialogue, and you're creating something like a collective flow state so that what emerges, right, is a dynamical system. And as I uh, basically have been proposing throughout this, the last few lectures, that the word spirit is basically pointing towards dynamical systems that, right, are evolving. We create a dynamical system that gives people the resources to address uh, their capacity for being in touch with themselves and each other. It's not therapy, although it overlaps with some of the, the Gnosis in therapy as well. You know this. You know that you, it, when things are right and you get in sync with another person or another group of people, there's a, and we talked about this with platonic dialogue, something emerges. There's a collective, right, that emerges there that takes your cognition and everybody else's in places that you can't go individually. You participate in that but you don't make it. You're not just a passive re recipient of it. You're not just a patient of it, right? You're participating in it. And so I, I want to learn more about this, but w there is a growing, and, and this is this, the, 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 the circling practice overlaps uh, with other practices that uh, Peter and I are learning about, um, uh, where you're, uh, Peter talks about you know, a, a process he calls the anti-debate, where we turn adversarial debating, we have techniques for turning it into authentic relating where we're trying to get insight rather than victory in our, uh, our debating processes. There's, there's lots of books coming out on this like, you know, Verbal Aikido and Verbal Judo. So there is the beginning of a whole set of practices for bringing about authentic discourse that can really address uh, the issues of alienation. Okay. Now, of course, as I said, the response to existential entrapment is gnosis, and we had extended uh, discussion about that and its interconnection with higher states of consciousness. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about that, that at great length. Please go back and look at that, that gnosis. But what I would say is that gnosis seems to need, and you see this with Jeep form, and you see this in therapy, it needs that open-ended mythos that the Gnostics talked about. I'm not, talk, I'm not advocating their particular mythos. I'm not saying their metaphysics is correct, but that, that transgressive, the open-ended, ongoing right, symbol, the ongoing mythos, these seem to be uh, needed uh, for the cultivation of Gnosis. And so I would recommend uh, that to you. So what I want to do next time is come back 
and put this all together, what it looks like, and then start talking about the overall framing of this, the way we frame how we cultivate the individual psychotechnologies, the individual practices, and how we also how we constellate the ecology of those uh, in a state of enlightenment within a wisdom framing. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Oh, yeah. Wow, well, meant to come back to that earlier, but it was all just kind of... Yeah, there's so much there. Rough, 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 rough. Rough, 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 rough. Jaya. All right, so the whole what to do about all this, you know, we we talked about, you know, briefly in this and then more in more depth in the last episode, we talked about the problems. So mm -hmm. now we're trying, what to do. We're trying to respect where we really are, what the situation really is, mm -hmm. and what we have access to in throughout our human history that we can pull back up to the present and get into communication with one another and start to incorporate these various practices together. So he started showing us now what are the actionable solutions to the downsides of our relevance realization that has gotten us into this meaning crisis. So, yeah. Um, Man, this is so cool the way he's broken. Now we're at the finally at the actionable solution point, but he had to explicate the problem in great detail and the various capacities humans have and prove them scientifically before getting us mm -hmm. to this point to where this was a, th a theory that he could reasonably propose. So we so got into we the, the functional end. So yep. the first of the function is the self-organizing aspect. Mm -hmm. So the downside is parasitic processing. Yep. His solution for this is uh, cultivating counteractive dynamical systems that you mm -hmm. internalize. Mm -hmm. um, and his mm -hmm. example was the cultivation of the Eightfold Path yes. for that. Um, yes, an ecology of practices to cultivate a counteractive dynamical system that helps to counteract the parasitic dynamical systems that we mm -hmm. have going on. And, and so, yeah, yeah, like, you know, literally counteract them. So they're mm -hmm. going one way, you're throwing a force in the other direction to at, at least pause it for a moment. Slow it down, yeah. pause it, maybe start to turn it and wind it in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. That's the hope here. That's right. We're trying to reverse a tornado, basically. And, and he, he makes a point also. He brings up the Eightfold Path, but that's just a prototypical, not exclusive mm -hmm. example. There's yeah, many, yeah. you know, Stoicism, Christianity, there's many other wisdom traditions that offer great, helpful solutions that we can fold into one another and start mm -hmm. to come up with an even stronger solution here. So there's the self-ID, which is modal confusion. Mm -hmm. Yep, we can have modal confusion. You know, we get confused and we get stuck in this having mode orientation. We don't, when we don't need to be in a having mode orientation, we can be back in our being mode. You need having mode to be able to obtain things like food and water and shelter and things like that. But if we can, we can even do that from our being modes so that we can be consciously aware of how we're acting in, a, in a response to the world and with and one another mm -hmm. others we interact with. And so the prescription for that is sati, and we sati. talked about that. Remembering in the being modes. Yes. Yes. Just, just looking back, and then the problems with reflection and the uh, uh, the reflectiveness gap issue is mm -hmm. the flow state. Yes, the flow state is the solution, and to our modal confusion. So we have uh, anxiety as well, and so under self-identification problems. 
Mm. Um, we need something that gives us deep interpenetration that the capacity. So we have this, these states of self transcendence we can experience. You have the state of all knowings and, and the states of oneness. And so the scaling up and scaling down, we want to be happening at once. This is the middle way that the Buddha tried to describe to the world. Yeah. Allow these different modes to be an inner dialogue. And to, to solve this, we can internalize the sage. Yeah. And then we get to alienation. The sense of connectedness to the other can help heal yeah. this. Authentic discourse. Yeah, and the word he this. used for that was communitas. Communitas. Which will come up more. And then yes. we have... Um, existential entrapment well gnosis and higher states of consciousness mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and all these things we must have them wrapped within a wisdom framing to avoid the self-deception and bullshit yes um, while improving ourselves you know and that that's the purpose of the wisdom right is to know what's appropriate when where and why well maybe not necessarily exactly why but you can intuit that too Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just realized I was going off of my my uh, previous notes from uh, from earlier in the episode. Yeah. So parasitic processing again, we're looking to cultivate the set of practices uh, where fittedness is maximized. I'm just yeah, catching no, up I, in my notes here with you, and yeah, I just want to add a couple more notes yeah. here. Um, we need it to be able to get this fittedness maximized in a way that takes on a life of its own. That's in which these various practices are reinforcing one another, so that we can really charge up this counteractive dynamical system yeah. to balance our capacities, to get higher order overall abilities yeah. out of the previous abilities. We bring them together, a new skill set emerges. Complementary relations are organized together in a counteractive dynamical system that can operate in ways beneficial to the individual human and society as a whole. So then we went modal confusion again, guys. Well, We're talking um, about mindfulness practices, stoicism that can help us remember sati, re-inhabit the being mode and how flow state is a solution here. Triggers flow and optimizes. This is Taoism is, the, is like the religion of the flow state Verveku was describing. So to be able to be flexible, so we need movement practices. And then, of course, the solution to absurdity is prajna. Attention is being both bottom-up and from the top down at once, we have this capacity. Our relation to be with the world, in relation with the world, is co-creative. And we've talked on Spinoza here. Yeah. Do you remember this one? The ethics. Um, the eth a lot ethics of this basically. is covered on the individual. Yeah. The individual ones, because mm -hmm. um, he just listed them out, and then we're going Tons deeper into there. So he gave he gave us so much insight in this episode, though he was okay. really going fast. So on the more in-depth one, we should probably just start a cultivation and work our way through because there is so much instead of going over it. it all yeah, I'm, I'm moving pretty fast at this but, point. We're, we're on to... So let's just call it, we're at parasitic processing. Today. We're at parasitic processing at the top of the board, the mm -hmm. very first one. He went further into it, and his yes. prescription is, you know, cultivating, of course, cultivating a set of practices that are... Um, independent interdependent and self-rolling that's it and that's the yes. counter dynamic system and he, he gave a story example of this of the goldsmith you look mm -hmm. at the gold nothing happens you melt it well you just get melted stuff um but once you craft it so you put some intention into it and technique into it mm -hmm. and practice into it then you get art and all three of these give the value of it mm -hmm. um so they're in mm -hmm. a complementary relationship so to expand that you take 
different sets of psycho, psycho, psycho technologies, develop and cultivate them, then bring them all together and then apply them. Yes. And that's, yes. Um, you know, how we get out of the parasitic processing. Yes, because we're becoming more fitted to the world. Fittedness is being maximized. And then the modal confusion, of course, ways that trigger flow t to optimize the conditions mm -hmm. in which we can be increasingly flexible and have access to what's needed in a fluid, easy way. Like mm -hmm. we're just interacting with life fluidly with the least amount of stress and resistance. Yep. And then absurdity is solved uh, by ethics. Well, before the absurdity is the reflectiveness gap and flow state. Yes, yeah. But both yeah. scaling up and down um, mm -hmm. at the same mm -hmm. time. So set up practices and conditions that enhance the flow state. Yes. And and to a certain extent also must be responsible and you know, get grounded in wisdom again, mm -hmm. uh, particularly with dealing with the flow yes. state. And prajna is a self-liberating state of wisdom. You're looking as far in and as far out so, as you yeah, can to, at once. So to deal with absurdity is mm -hmm. prajna. It's prajna, yes. 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 Okay. Which... Yeah, the, sorry, you were still on modal confusion. There. No, no, I was yeah. still on reflectiveness gap. Well, uh, which, which, which which actually leads in into dealing with absurdity because absurdity. Right, yes. We're now in the realm of getting into the non-dual state, um, and you know you can say like practice the epic, epics, which mm -hmm. are a system of um, intuitive knowing. So there's argument in one direction and argument in the other direction, and seeing both of them. Yes. And seeing the fittedness of both of them to the whole, mm -hmm. and then, which allows you to see the one argument. Whole and I'm arguments. only using the word argument um, because it's not, it, like it's it's a good example, but it's not necessarily it's the like, propositional state of knowing. You're seeing all the different propositional yes, proposition states are, yes, at once. Yeah. So you're you're seeing the actual problem space more clearly when you understand the various arguments yeah. from the various perspectives. So there is no argument against absurdity. Because mm -hmm. it's after the fact, so it's a perspectival clash. So using this project, that's right. Technique. So you need something different. You can't just have an argument or a proposition yeah. to solve absurdity. You it, need something else. So what? Yeah, what Prajna gives us is worldview attunement through the practice of ethics. Mm -hmm. The logical structure of ethics helps us to develop intuitive knowing, as DJ was saying. So Spinoza talks about the ethics of blessedness and sacredness, and that's an aspect of ethics that we've lost. So we're bringing to life that realization that remembrance that sati again in this case and he speaks on the difference if you practice ethics you can see the whole argument holistically you gain the cosmic perspective that interpenetrates with individual level of thoughts as well mm -hmm. so it's it, and he brings up the quote the eye by which i see god is the eye by which god sees me that's the prajna state yeah it's a meta argument it's going from the premises like the ethics which are like the little letters to the meta state of wisdom where you are looking as far in and as far out as once and you are able to be simultaneously in, in those states um at this now the scaling down to pure consciousness and the up to the, the one, sense of oneness the gestalt with and oneness with everything um to be able to do this as much as possible allows us maximum frame-breaking potential and frame-making potential at once. So this is the optimizing of that frame-breaking mm -hmm. and making capacity that we have. This addresses, addresses the absurdity. Because there, there's, like we were saying, no propositional or argumentative way to study or approach it. Yeah, and, and 
you know, flow state, like flow state practices can help with this as well. Because when you're like, when you're in a flow state, say like musically speaking, you are solving many problems at once. You have many different propositions coming at you, particularly when you're playing with other people. And deeply, everything's deeply meaningful. Yeah. And <clears throat> so it's, it's helping. I can see how it and would help seeing, ameliorate that. You're seeing the absurdity. part, the, the, the individual part and the whole thing yeah. at the same time you're as practicing well. Practicing solving things is what yeah. music is. It's like mathematical problems and solutions and, that's, that we hear. And sometimes you can be humorously absurd with it mm-hmm. as well you know, mm-hmm. by yeah. breaking it. And then well, by celebrating the absurdity, you're learning how to write it joyfully. You and know? I would actually probably argue that humor um the reason why it works so well for absurdity is because it is very much doing this it's scaling up and scaling down yeah it's making proposition up proposition down at the same time then with a nice little punchline aha at the end that gets you to it laugh, switches your you know? perspective and it puts you into sati mode and you're mm-hmm. back into like the moment and being you're mm-hmm. laughing with surprise it has a joyful insight to it he said i like that yeah so now we have anxiety yes. which is the inner conflict with no specific target mm-hmm. so it's not like yeah know, it, as in, like, you know, I, I fear the dog biting me. It's just anxiety. It's a nonspecific sense of threat yeah. in the world. The and sense of something wrong that has to do with inner conflict, but there's nothing that you can target mm-hmm. that seems to be the source of it. It's just like a nonspecific sense of threat. So it's a, And it's a state of being at war within oneself. Yeah. So how do we help solve this? We can internalize the sage to incorporate the various centers of our psyche. And so not only do we need to internalize this through and or we can internalize, let's say this, through a model, a representation, a role model, a model for how to Mm -hmm. what how we can orient ourselves. Yeah. And not exchange and dialogue and not necessarily like a role model like, you know. Captain America is my role model. Well, in a sense, I guess you you could see that, but like more like when he was talking about like you know internalizing Plato, the Platonic mode. You get these two different, or you get these multiple little conflicting parts in your head to all start talking, talking with each together. other yeah. inside. Yeah. So our um, our capacity to interact with the sage, we can actually turn this within, and we can have within that interaction, mm-hmm. such that it becomes a part of our own metacognitive capacity. So it becomes a holistic capacity for ourselves to to mm-hmm. think through, to be through. So this process of I, of identification. Yeah. So yeah. it's internalizing the stage and identif- mm-hmm. identification. Because internalizing the stage, it's like the other person's perspective or the other side of the argument. But then in dwelling, seeing through that argument. Practicing actually, what it's like to see as the sage does. Like, yeah. what would Jesus do? What would Socrates yeah. do? Mm-hmm. What would Buddha do? Yeah, you know, like... To indwell in, from his perspective yeah. and, and see it from the sage's perspective to practice at it. Just like we, we do when we're kids. We role play. Yeah, you know, different parental roles or different professional mm-hmm. roles and things to through the partaking in co-creative story to get a grasp on to begin to get a grasp on this idea that's so complex to us at first. So it well, helps us get well, a handle. Sure, you know, you, you can know? Pl- you can play at something without completely understanding it. Like, you know, the mm-hmm. child doesn't the children don't understand the whole like, oh, welcome home, honey, from work. They I don't know what work is. You just leave. They have a very low resolution, like, but it's still idea in their very, minds of it. But it's enough to get it, to get a handle sure. on it. Well, because to begin to 
yeah. to get to know it. You know, it's yeah. just like you got to learn to start riding a bike somewhere. And at first, your sense of balance and how how the thing feels and how it reacts to you is really not well informed at all. You know, from, yeah. it goes from zero to uh, you know increasing potential on into forever. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Like so, there's there's a really good example of indwelling. Um, and to a certain extent, self soccer or, or, um, excuse me, um, self, um, internalizing the sage. There's oh, okay. this group That's of, there's Socratic dialogue. Yeah. There's, there's this group of guy or guys and gals. Um, and maybe a, they don't mean to offend anybody. who love those guys, but, um, critical role and basically their voice and some of you probably know who they are, but basically their voice actors playing Dungeons and Dragons. Huh. And there's a technique in acting that is very much off the cuff improv role play. Mm-hmm. So you're given like base parameters. You're in this place, this thing is happening, and each one of them has, you know, a character that they're developing and has to respond as that character. So indwell that yeah. character. And you can see when they break. And it's a story, it's just their character, but they're, you know, really getting into it. And not just to create a good storyline, but you have to, to like, what would your character do under yeah. a certain circumstance yeah. when the dragon's coming? But like your friend over there that you really, really love is about to die. Like, are you going to go mm-hmm. and like, you can see the decisions made. And like, when you get into that and, you know, since they are voice actors, they're very practiced at doing that. You can see their emotions oh, cool. and they break down. Like, sounds fun. And you get, yeah, dude, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And even if you don't like, Dungeons what's that called? Uh, critical role. Critical they're, role. They're on okay. their third campaign. Uh, hell's bells. All right. Um, on check. Yeah. Check out, check out critical that. Role, if, guys. if you're interested in watching people really do that and do it very well and be entertained at the same time. It gets yeah. a little confusing though because you know they'll be like in character and at the moment they'll be like, "Hey DM," but da 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 da, and you're like, "Damn, <laughs> broke me out of it." And then they're back and you're like, "Wow, wow." So yeah, and well, there are a bunch of nerds that I'm sure grew up with uh, a bunch of anxiety. So these practices seem to actually work. You know, your box the, kids, the, theater kids actually like this is one way they deal with anxiety is they get mm-hmm. a group and you see a lot of they get in the group and well, they, a shy person can often be a great actor mm-hmm. because putting on a mask allows you to act through a new another in a different role that is separated from your own yeah you know so it's it's a whole different ball game now consciously mm-hmm. so now we move on to alienation alienation the solution for this is communitas yeah so uh, flowing communion mm-hmm. collective flow or communal flow that sense of when you feel in sync in a, in a deep conversation where you're kind of figuring things out together and it's real communication it's real communication like you're both getting it yes and it's actually, it's so it's become so deep that uh, a sense of the logos can emerge, and they call this dialogos, or Verveke has termed this this dialogos. It's communion as as in a shared identity that is the culmination, the incorporation of all the identities in the circle, sure. having the, sharing yeah. this conversation. Yeah. But it's something new but as well that is above and beyond everybody together. And they're all there. And you can sense for, it. For a specific purpose, even though the identities of like, you'll you sen- know. You'll sense it when it takes hold because it's like your brain's coming to sync. And I don't know if they've done studies of people's neural activity under these states yet, but I... Um, send them an email. Like, I'm sure maybe that they those, have. those may be the guys I to know like maybe or they have, can. Well, it, it does... They have done this with people in sports, mm-hmm. and they do get into a sympathetic state of resonance as far as the, the activity of their brain waves is concerned. They yeah. get into a certain state that they're all unified in. It's just mm-hmm. it's really cool stuff. So this is a capacity we have for problem solving. This is true problem solving. Yeah. It's the highest level of problem solving. And so we're going to have to also look into 
how our practices of communication are being undermined by the bullshit. Yes, they have been severely corrupted by our failing political and social systems. Yeah. So authentic discourse, authentic relating is the solution here. And then he gets into Jordan Hall. Yeah. um, Something you want to say before that? No, I just got to figure out what this freaking word is. Reaccesses. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so this authentic discourse or relating mm-hmm. reaccesses are um, other kinds of knowing, mm-hmm. and uh, and how they are also inter- inter- um, interdependent. Yes. Um, in the process of attunement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like much like the string, you're attuning yourself to the world. You're attuning. You're tuning yourself to to the chord yes that's right so you can play a chord or tuning the individual strings to get that proper chord effect so using the perspectival the um uh, participatory the uh, yeah yeah so the procedural knowing depends on our perspectival knowing Mm -hmm. which depends upon our participatory process attunement in the agent arena relationship Mm -hmm. So he speaks on Jordan Hall here because he's trying to bring all of this together at once and as a way to get what he terms coherence. And look yeah. at Jordan Hall's work. It is stellar. He's on YouTube. He's on Substack as well as that, or is it Medium? He has a Medium page, I remember, where he talks about the red church and the blue church. His terminology is really, really intriguing. He's an incredible person to listen to, uh, engaged in dialogue as well. And he has several conversations that he's taken part in with Verveke, including not just one-on-ones, but Dialogos or circling sessions between him and several other people that are kind of in their grouping, that they're work- that are all working together on the meaning crisis. Jordan Hall is the guy that actually invented the Divic codec, which helped us get video on the internet in the first place. And <laughs> after, you know, achieving great success uh, professionally, he then turned his literally genius level uh, uh, brain <laughs> onto these same problems that Verveke has been looking at. So to see these two guys come into conversation together is so cool. It feels like we're seeing uh, new Socratic-style minds come into a Socratic dialogue together in our midst, and they're putting it out on the Internet for us all to be able to engage with. This is the first time we've been able to perhaps have the opportunity to do this globally. Mm-hmm. So Jordan Hall, he wants to get coherence. He wants to help us develop communitas to engage our collective intelligence capacities, mm-hmm. the most powerful problem-solving potential that we have in concert to marshal our distributive cognition and its collective intelligence to free us of the, the problems, you know, to the bring to bear on the problems. The historical facing. grammar that mm-hmm. we've used as well. Yes, um, to free us from the historical grammar that we're caught up in. To access our like our abilities and to apply yes. them yeah, as the well. Yeah, di- the different types of knowing, the procedural, mm-hmm. the perspectival, and the participatory states of knowing. Because you don't just know what something is. You know how it feels to interact with it and from your own perspective and what it feels to be in participation with somebody, such as in a husband-wife or student-teacher kinds of relationships. And so this is deep, deeper other kinds of knowing that we have that are in our being mode that we can engage to face the meaning crisis. So we talked about circling, uh-huh. mindfulness, a mindfulness practice that is also engaged in platonic dialogue at once to give people that dynamical systems and the resources for being in touch with each other. 
Yeah, so the idea is to create an emergent dynamical system that mm-hmm. gives pe- people the resources to adapt one's one and all's fittedness. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's well that's this coherence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, that, that's what helps bring about uh, coherence. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good way of putting that. It's a coherence, part of the coherence schema that Jordan Hall is elucidating. Yeah. So um, the collective sense emerges so that we're not just going through this individually or we're going through this communally. Yeah, and developing these styles of discourse that can address alienation, and there's things and you know things that must be practiced as well. So this is like you know as we're creating these things, there must be practices that you do in order to in in embody the mm-hmm. the lessons from it and understanding and, it, and also yeah, internalize them and embody them. Yeah, explicate um, them, share in them. No. So this is a entrapment solution now. He just yeah. goes over very briefly yeah. because there's a previous episode. I forget. It yeah. was the ones um, on... Uh, Gnosis and Higher States of Consciousness, there it is. I think, yeah. is the one. Um, but so basically, you want the, the Gnosis is an open-ended mythos that's ever-evolving. So it's a symbol, a, a mythos symbol that's ever-evolving. And so it's mm-hmm. not just writing one thing down and that's it. Well, it keeps going. This whole, you know... The myths change and they should change because our experiences, our perceptions of the world, how we engage with it are always going to change yes. one way or another. Yes. It's always a change and everything's evolving. It's mm-hmm. not just one. Once you're fitted, you're not just fit there. Right. The world changes. The world so changes. you have to fit yeah. yourself again. So the myths of, of our past were fit to the cultural frameworks sure. of yeah. their times. And some aspects mm-hmm. of those are going to be un, uh, hard for us to comprehend and relate to. Some of them are going to seem like, you know, abhorrent to us in some ways. Because or, that's, or just, just that's plain, how you know, people had found a way to relate with or, the world or, at that point in time. Or plain silly, like Zeus or would, silly. Come, yeah. would come down to Earth as a goose and yeah. impregnate ladies. That seems pretty silly, but in that period of time, the goose symbolized something. Zeus had his own, uh, what would you call goose it? A, por- a, fertility, por- maybe. a portfolio of responsibilities, if you will, mm-hmm. that he's responsible for. He's the head god. Then there's the fracturing, and you know, okay, well, the gods used to be perfect, but no, now they're not perfect, or... The gods used to be impartial and just, you know, more like the Titans. They make the weather and all that stuff. But now they're more like people and they're imperfect. And it's like, and they well, give if, us also good moral examples or, or show us what bad moral examples are. But then the idea of God changes to, well, then, you know, gods should be perfect because then what's higher than human, you, you human, human level. Yeah, yeah, that's beyond the objective and the subjective that yeah. we can always continue to rise so, to. So things, things change, and you know, we're just talking about the nature of God yeah. there, but you know... But hey, then we got stuck in a two-worlds mythology where yeah. there's this perfect thing up in the sky yeah. and then that's down here just being judged mercilessly, and it's yeah. like, actually, that's where the a lot of the New Testament works seem to be saying, no, but God is actually infinitely merciful. You are infinitely loved and accepted yeah. just just as you in, are. In me and in He still in wants you, you to grow yeah. in you. You're not in this shoebox in best. God's closet. If, but if anything, you're forgiven no matter what. And, yeah, and also God is in this shoebox with us. Yes. Not just lording over. Yes. Um, yeah, God's love is perfected oh, wait, through us. There is so no shoebox. So we've been trying to figure out how to solve the two worlds mythology for a while. Yeah. Even in Christianity, this was already happening. And um, in Buddhism, this was happening. Yeah, but we've lost touch with these wisdom traditions that helped us at least get some sort of a handle and a way to optimize our interaction with one another and with the world around us. And they weren't perfect, but we've been constantly calibrating 
you know, sometimes we take two steps forward or two steps back before we take one step forward, it seems. But the cha-cha, one step forward and two steps back. There's going to be three steps forward again at some point or four or five or ten. And Well, I guess at the end of it, if, how, we, how do we help if we do it right, about? It, will, it will be a forward relationship of one mm-hmm. over time. So an average of one over. Yeah, one right. step forward. You, yeah. you know, you might take step, 10 steps back at one point in time, and then you're like, oh, 20 steps forward, and, I and think then we nine are. steps back. I but, think we are. It's yeah. just alarming when we take the steps back, because when you yeah. take two steps back from where you were, and it, it's only on a count of four, it's pretty far. That's halfway. Yeah, that right. could be quite an abrupt, uh, ex- excessive situation. So but that's all I got. Ultimately, yeah, the entrapment solution is, is this positive uh, sense of gnosis, that is an open-ended uh, mythos that is transgressive, beyond subjective and objective, that is open-ended and ongoing, ever-growing, ever-upgradable or updatable, you could say. And I like that. And that's, uh, that's, that's I, like what he's, I like what he's given us so far here. It's not separating us or condemning the wisdom traditions so one can still be a Christian or a Buddhist or even an atheist and engage with what Verveke is offering us. We can all develop a sense of the sacred. Well, and I think the the problems that we're having come before the solutions like religion or other practices. So what we're experiencing, you know, isn't something that's only within the religious end of things. It's actually something that religion was developed Point, to yeah. be able to help deal mm-hmm. with, That's which it. is ultimately what are we doing here? What's going on? What are we? Mm-hmm. Is there something else? And if there is, what's my relationship with it? You know, yes. the, the standard life's questions. So it's suiting to be able to go to for him to develop, be trying to develop, you know, this set of techniques, this yeah, counteractive dynamical to, systems to, that, to go directly to yeah. the core of it while using all the awesome things like different religions and practices yes. that have already been doing it to mm-hmm. still get at the same core to help problem. help inform and incorporate with one another to help us solve the same problem they've all been trying to solve. Because this is a problem beyond a religion, fashion. Beyond, beyond meditation, beyond yeah, yeah. anything. It's, it's, it's the core and it's the furthest out mm-hmm. of our human well, existence. Well, it's, it's so deep in us. Our, like he says over and again for us, relevance realization, our capacity for becoming fitted to the world and more and more connected to the world is also it's like a double-edged sword it has these downsides that also lead to parasitic processing and so on and they create these perennial problems so being able to be more fitted in more relation and uh increasingly higher order is is the solution to counteract so developing dynamical systems which will take an ecology of practices and conversation um, so that we're, we recognize we're in a constant calibration in relation. And frankly, if he's wrong with all this... Of it, co-creation with the sacred. If he's wrong with all this, and what he's trying to do is futile, the world is still a better place for him having done it. Yeah. There's a lot of things in your yeah. life, it's like, well, you know, like, that can lead you to self-failure. It's like, well, you know, what if I do all this stuff and it's wrong or, you know, stupid... Well, I'm sure you got something out of it and other people got something out of it. Nothing is completely, totally 100% wrong. Well, I won't say nothing, but probably the vast majority of things are 
at least have a nugget of something right in there or at least the attempt or at least the intentionality unless right, you, you know? force like the only way i could see this kind of thing going wrong is if some crazy manipulative horrible people after Verveki and his contemporaries die get a hold of this and pervert it just like a lot of other things have been done this would be hard to pervert because well, from the ground up it's, it's recognized it's a living it's it looks like it's going to be a living practice yes that people it's are important doing he, he to, describes yeah. throughout the series that we're a species that can frame something and then breaks the frame and it's ideal for us to be good at breaking frames now you could argue against this and say no you should have a very sturdy solid frame that never changes or no frame at all no frame at all frames frames are are which of course that is itself a frame yeah of thinking that's that of course the frame that is no frame through yeah so you can't you can't live in this world without having views on things but how do we create a view that integrates with one another that we're open to be advised by one another and we're going to be in dialogue learning together even from different people with different points of view from our own that's a whole nother orientation it's the agape love orientation that we spoke of earlier that christ and buddha represented for us so that's it guys that's the name of the game we are deep in it now episode 37 was awesome guys give some likes and subscribes to verveki for this work he's on Spotify, he's on Apple, he's on YouTube, he's on Twitter now. He X. seems to be everywhere he's, at this point. He's all now. over the place now. His team is doing good work. He's doing extraordinary work. And of course, standing on the shoulders of giants, which he 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 admits often. And at this episode, he had to address the hubris yeah, of trying yeah, to approach right. something like this. Yeah. But that's why he says this is an open-ended thing. This is just us beginning to try and figure out how to approach the meaning crisis. How can we solve it and develop an actual actionable theoretical framework for doing so and that's it guys it's uh it's been an awesome journey so far we have not too many like 12 episodes left now uh what yeah it's we'll be yeah. on 38 next week so that's 12 yeah. episodes boy oh, thank you for man. joining us guys and if you are in the dc baltimore area check our band out we got a couple shows coming up august 26th is going to be at bad habits it's a festival with like i don't know several different bands that happens and Martinsburg, playing West all Virginia. day and into the evening and we're going to be playing at 245 there so come on out check it out or uh september 2nd uh the following week we're going to be playing at blue fox in winchester virginia with uh, Nova- novarium and fairy's death waltz we'd love to see you guys come on out if you're in the area and once again we love you thank you so much for being here help this show grow by sharing it with your friends and family And smash that like and subscribe. We will see you next time. Peace. Meow.